We live in a world where we are constantly categorizing, labeling experiences, products, entities. We do this in our cupboards, in our kitchens, in our homes, in our businesses. So while it's critical for an organized and efficient life to have categories, shelves, structure, but what happens when we begin doing that to each other as human beings? What does it indicate and what does it do to the human condition when we label one another? Which really is another form of stereotyping. So though in general terms it seems innocuous, but if you think about it, it can really lead to the worst possible discrimination, prejudices, biases, hate, and all that has plagued the human race from the beginning of time. So please join me in this important discussion. Inclusivity. Am I a label? And discover that labels are for clothing, not for souls. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we will be speaking about inclusivity. Am I a label? This program is dedicated in honor of Shimi Traurig's birthday. Human nature likes organization. We abhor chaos. We abhor clutter. And in the process of organizing things, what we do is we categorize. When the mail comes in, you sort the mail by category, what belongs in the garbage, what needs to be filed, what needs to be addressed. And the same in every aspect of our lives. Look at our closets, our clothing. Look at our homes. Each room has its particular function. Go into a kitchen, you have a cupboard, You have a refrigerator, and as I said, in an organized lifestyle, things will be shelved properly for easy retrieval. And the same thing is in other parts of our home, and our work, and our business, and our desk. (laughs) It's true, some people have desks that don't seem very organized, but they feel it's organized. I remember walking in on someone who used to have a desk piled up almost to the ceiling. I say, how do you find anything? He says, tell me, what are you looking for? So I mentioned something, and he knew exactly where it was. It was uh, an art to try to pull out that page without the whole pile falling over. But in his mind, there was a certain organization. Now, recently, we hear about these experts who come and reorganize your closets for more efficiency use of space. Now, we all can relate to that. makes total sense makes life more efficient. Think of your computer. 
What happens when it gets cluttered? You can't find the document, how frustrating it is. That's why it's so critical to have an information architecture, a structure, a filing system, a database, categories, 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 categories. Labels. We label our files, we label our, label our products, we label our clothing. Okay, so far so good, right? But now, let's talk about each other. Do we label and categorize each other? So, ostensibly, that's what we do. When you meet someone, you size them up by their body language, by their communication, by their dress. And that seems to be quite innocuous, innocent, just trying to understand who this person is and how to communicate with them. But if you take it a step further, if you label them and say, ah, this person fits into this category, so there too, that can be very innocent and harmless, but it could also lead to what we call stereotyping, to the point of even discrimination. And because we live in a planet with so many different people and so many different cultures and races and religions and faiths and colors and shapes, it's not hard to imagine how diversity can lead to divisiveness, to distrust, and sometimes based on nothing else but our stereotype. Not because we've had experience with someone, but we fit them in. Now, our intention may be a good one, which is simply to organize our lives. But do you, would you like to be put on a shelf? Would you be put, like a label posted on you? We're more complex than that. Because we're not physical products. We have a soul. We have a personality. We're filled with paradoxes. There are people that can look one way and be very differently than what they project. The biggest, most famous cliche of all is... And false cliche, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Everybody judges a book by its cover. That's why it's a billion-dollar business, packaging, marketing, covers, book covers. Because we judge things by what it looks like. And if the package looks good, we may open it. If it doesn't, less likely that we will. The concept is beautiful. Don't judge a book by its cover. The cover is only the surface level. You don't need to be a a rocket scientist to know that we understand today the world as we see it with our senses and experience it with our sensory tools, sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell, is only the surface level. Don't ever judge anything. You come into a room, it looks inanimate, it's filled with energy, pulsating energy today, especially when you're familiar with nuclear energy, atomic energy. Things are made up of molecules, which in turn are made up of atoms and subatomic particles human being, the cellular structure, the subcellular, the DNA. So it's all around us to understand that the invisible is actually the driving force. So going back, so categorizing things on a practical level, simply to be able to structure and organize our lives is one thing. But when you start applying that to an area which really is, defies categorization, because of the complexity of the human spirit and psyche, that is, frankly, and not just a disservice, it's a distortion. As I said, look at yourself. Do you want someone to judge you by what you look, by how you dress today, by your mood, 
It doesn't mean it shouldn't be a factor in interacting. Someone's behaving in a very obnoxious way. You know, it's not that it's, we should always be kind. You shouldn't judge them, but you have to always you have to deal with that. But never define a person by behavior or by labels or by stereotypes. So this is a challenge that we have. Because, as I said, our tendency is to do so for efficiency purposes. Our minds immediately say, you open up your eyes, you look out the window, you say, oh, today's a rainy day, today's a sunny day. We're always categorizing, because that's the way we work. That's what the mind does. But we have to be very careful when it comes to human beings. So let's talk about this deeper level. To put it simply, the formula is this. As long as you see another person on a surface, external level, let's call it a material level, physical level, we will categorize. As soon as you see a person on a spiritual level, their soul, we won't categorize any further because we don't know what their soul is like. So you can have a person who's behaving in an atrocious way. I'll go even further, even a criminal who belongs in prison because he's destructive and and a danger to others. That doesn't mean that's his soul. That means his behavior is that way. And he is responsible and accountable. No one's dismissing that. But let's not define him by that. We have to cry when we see someone behaving in that fashion because we have no choice to to protect others. You have to in some way limit that person's ability to hurt others. But that person has a soul. I'm using an extreme example. So it's really about our training and conditioning of looking at each other and even at ourselves. I was talking the other day to someone who simply says they hate themselves. Worst possible person. When I push them and say, tell me, what did you do that's so terrible? Everything. I'm hurting others. I'm hurting this one. I'm hurting that one. So I said, so, so do something about it. So don't hurt them. But the person is so consumed by their own self-perception, negative self-perception and self-loathing, not getting into the reasons why. So you can also look at yourself in the wrong way. You could also label yourself. I'm a bad person. I'm a good person. We have goodness inside us and we have the ability to also behave in a way that's not good. That's correct. But to label, to define in a definitive way, the Talmud has a very interesting insight. It talks about, obviously, legalities. If a person condemns themselves, they confess to a sin, to transgression. So it says a person cannot designate themselves to be a wicked person. And the same thing, a person can't designate themselves to be a righteous person. They're not objective. Both ways. Should others designate someone? Not necessarily. But definitely not yourself because you're subjective. It could either come from arrogance and an inflated sense of your own self-worth or it could come from arrogance that translates into the implosion of your ego which is self-loathing. Both of them, you shouldn't be dictating that. The truth is it shouldn't be with anyone. No one has appointed us the judge and the jury to determine who's who. You can react to people as they behave, as you interact with them, but never ever define them by that. 
This is a critical piece in understanding yourself and understanding the world around us. When you think about it, it's very simple. But when you try to act on it, it's not, because we're creatures of habit. I'll talk as a Jew right now, and then as a human being, even though I see them as synonymous. Not that every human is Jewish, but Jewish is not being not human. Anti-Semitism, one of the plagues of history. Irrational, as if anything is irrational, to stereotype, categorize an entire nation, entire people, by calling them Jew or dirty Jew or whatever the words that have been used. And then, of course, the actions that have been perpetrated throughout history. We all find, any decent person finds abhorrent. Even those that are anti-Semites, and I have met a few, and obviously try to understand their mentality, justify it. They don't say, I'm doing something abhorrent. I've cr-. They say, that's who they are. They're accursed people. Jesus killers. Christ killers. And throughout history, they've always sucked the blood of their Christian neighbors, or whatever the expressions are. So the person is justifying it. When the Nazis dehumanized the Jews, they did so with a real sophisticated propaganda machine of first dehumanizing them. Rodents, God forbid. Bacteria, infection. We all kill infections, we all kill rodents, we all kill anything that is not human. So once you justify it in that fashion, then you legitimize the worst possible type of behavior, killing innocent men, women, and children for no other reason than being Jewish. And I don't mean to keep this exclusively to Jews. It's just the Jews have suffered perhaps more than any at this, and, and subject to more than to, to hatred and to genocide and to persecution and expulsions almost at the, hand, at the hands of almost every nation on earth. I'm not going to say every nation, especially of late, things have changed. But this is true about the Armenians, and it's true about the other nations and races that have been discriminated against and killed simply because they were a different color or a different culture or a different religion. And history is fraught with examples of this. What lies at the heart of it? And I don't, I'm not trying to get away from the emotional, painful aspect, just to understand a bit. What lies at the heart is how we look at each other. Just because a person is not like you, is that a reason to hate them? Is that a reason to dismiss them? To dehumanize them? To delegitimize? Invalidate? Now, if someone did something to you directly, someone did something criminal, I mentioned before a criminal. So there, you have to protect yourself. There's a thing called self-defense. But it has to be an objective issue. If you decide in your mind someone hurt you, and then you check with someone objective, and they say, no one ever hurt you, it's in your imagination, that you could do a lot of damage when you prosecute, try to prosecute that individual or, or look for vengeance. But even then, as we shall soon discuss more in detail, even if it's a criminal that has hurt you and you have all the right for justice and definitely to protect yourself, that doesn't mean the person, the soul, did that. It means the soul is in host- is being held hostage by that person's behavior and actions 
fully accountable. But it's important because you'll soon see where none of us are perfect and therefore all of us have that pure soul. So it's really how we look at each other and how we look at ourselves. Interesting statement in the Jerusalem Talmud. There are two books. There was the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalemite Talmud. Talking about a verse in the book of Leviticus that says, the cardinal law, the cardinal, the golden rule, love your fellow like yourself. Says Rabbi Akiva, this is a cardinal cornerstone principle. The Klal Gadol Batar. So in explaining it, so it's not just love. Obviously, we all understand hatred is a despicable thing. And love and kindness seems to be the norm. But it's deeper than that. We're all part of one organism. Just like there's one big ecosystem. So if one person is hurt by another, you're hurting yourself. The example being the right hand hitting the left hand because it doesn't like what the left hand did. You don't realize you're hurting yourself. It's, God forbid, like you talk about certain, certain uh, autoimmune diseases that the body turns on itself. One of the most horrendous things possible. So how is it possible that I could hurt myself? Because I don't know it's myself. We're blinded. In the words of the great Ariza, Isaac Luria, there's that symptom, a black hole, a fundamental concealment that doesn't allow us to feel and see and experience how we're part of one. You would never hurt yourself if you were healthy. So the fact that you can hurt another person is because you're not seeing. And therefore, you think you're not hurting myself, I'm hurting that person. So essentially, racism, discrimination, stereotyping, label is actually labeling a part of yourself, except you're not aware of it. That's how ludicrous the concept is. But that's how we look at each other. We look at ourselves. We're educated and we grew up in a society where we are different. Different race, different religion, different faith, different value system. That's called diversity. The fact that human beings have different nature, different ways of thinking, different opinions is beautiful. That's what creates beauty, actually. Harmony within diversity. The challenge is when you see that difference as being not me. Look at the human body. Between 35 and 75 trillion cells. Trillion. Each is different. Look at how many systems we have. If you were to dissect the human body, the anatomy, and you wouldn't know it's a human being, you'd never imagine that the lungs and the heart and the brain and the liver and the diaphragm and the kidneys... And the bladder, I'm just going through just randomly, choosing different organs. All work together in one small body. And in a synchronicity, that is awesome. Or look at nature. So we have examples of it all over. But when it comes to ourselves, we're blinded, we're subjective. And we don't think about it. And especially when we're conditioned, where we don't even think altogether, so we just label, ah, a Jew. Ah, a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, a Democrat, a Republican. And that laziness, so to speak, is actually quite destructive. Because even though just labeling someone itself 
may not be criminal. I would argue it is criminal, but what it leads to is criminal because you essentially distorted the very nature of another person and very nature of yourself, not understanding that the true person is the soul within. And that soul is divine. We're created, as the Bible tells us, in the divine image. It's critical to understand that. The founding fathers of the United States understood it. They put it into the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. And by virtue of that, we all have unalienable rights endowed to us by the Creator, the freedoms and rights that we so cherish. I've always thought, why did they put the word Creator in there? Twice. Created. They could have said, all men are born equal. I would correct it and say, because men can be misunderstood. Men and women, all people are created equal. You could have said, all people are born equal. All people are equal. Endowed with inalienable rights. Because they understood, I've researched this, and I've spoken to legal attorneys and lawyers and experts on the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Never really found an adequate answer. My simple answer is because they understood that if you don't attribute it to the Creator, then who's giving those rights? If we are, if the majority is giving, the majority could also withdraw those rights. Once you call a Creator, we all know there's no Creator among us. The Creator is something beyond us who created us all. So it's coming from a higher place. It's not a religious statement. It's a very logical one. It's actually guaranteeing the equality of all people. Despite our diversity. Or perhaps because of our diversity. So it's brilliant if you think about it. Because no one can come and say, hey, we're the majority and we decided some, some minority are not equal. No one gave you that right as the creator. We find these truths to be self-evident. It's the Creator that gave that right. So it's really understanding our very, we'll call it cosmic purpose, the soul's cosmic connection to something greater. Whatever name you want to give it, as you know, I'm not into labels. I don't want to label God either or religion. I've dealt with this myself all my life. I'm stereotyped all the time. I speak for many audiences. And then people see what I look like. A beard, a yarmulke. Oh, they call me a rabbi, an orthodox rabbi, a Jew. Many people, they like the message. So they forgive me, so to speak, for that. I've heard this from many. They've told me, I know a lot of people that look like you, I don't trust. You I trust. Thank you. But they're stereotyping. Now, it could be there are individuals that are not dressed like me also can't trust. So it's nothing to do with dress. It's to do with who you are. So I've been subject, I'm quite familiar with this concept of stereotyping. Thank God I cannot say I've been hurt by it or discriminated against. Who knows, maybe things have happened that I'm not aware of. But not in any ostensible way that I can say, point to that I, I, need, to, um, I need to litigate or uh, prosecute and so on. But I've seen it, we've all seen it. And we've seen it with all types of minorities and all types of individuals both in this country and other countries, because we are lacking the most important thing of all, 
And this begins at home from when we're little children and our schools and our, so, and our social systems and our media to constantly reinforce one thing. You are a divine soul. And let me explain when I say the word God, my favorite story with Rabbi Yitzhak Badichev, the great 19th century Hasidic rabbi said to a self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe and I also don't believe. So God too can be stereotyped and labeled and actually is. So when Nietzsche said God is dead, look what he's writing. He's talking about the God that he was given. The God that was stillborn, was never born in the first place. Of course, he discovered he was dead after a while. So it all comes down how you define it or don't define it. As soon as you pigeonhole something and straightjacket it into a particular label, rest assured, if it's not a uh, can of tomatoes or uh, cucumbers, I don't know why I said can, but you know what I mean. You already made the, the biggest flaw of all. You try to categorize and try to quantify something that's not quantifiable quite that way. One of my favorite examples is Sir Arthur Eddington's analogy when asked about subatomic particles, about quantum mechanics, which had all these bizarre conclusions. No one ever seen an atom, let alone a subatomic particle. How are you coming up with all these conclusions that defy Newtonian defy logical physics of cause and effect, states of indeterminism, of probability, of uncertainty. And his response of a fisherman who spread his net across all the seven seas and began collecting different types of fish and categorizing them. Color, shape, size, species. And after long research, he comes to a conclusion. There are no fish shorter than a half inch long in the sea. And he's about to make his big announcement to the wizards of the world when his little daughter comes in and sees them. He's about to make that statement. She says, what do you mean, Daddy? We have a fish tank. The little goldfish there that are shorter than a half inch. Of course, they look at the net that he used to gather the fish. The net, the spaces, the ropes of the net were half inch or wider. So, of course, all the fish shorter than that or smaller than that fell back into the water. So all you have to do is add one thing. When you use an instrument of a net that only has half-inch spaces, you're not going to catch fish that are shorter than half-inch long. But, of course, no one needs him for that. You don't need research for that. So, in other words, the flaws in the instrument. You want to see love? You're not going to see it with your physical eyes. You could see its expression, but not love itself. You want to see an idea? Not with your physical eyes. You need other instruments. And the same thing is with the soul itself. You don't need the instrument that we use to try to read the soul by looking at things and say, hey, I don't see it, so it's not there. Think about that. Most of real, real I would say most, all real things are not there based on those criteria of, this, of the senses. All the suprasensory experiences that we have. The deeper unity. I mentioned subatomic the DNA. All the things that drive existence are all not visible and also not audible and not subject to taste, touch, and smell. Those are tools for a particular macroscopic or macroscopic and macrocosmic and tangible world, empirical reality. But what about the whole reality that's not defined by the senses? So when we look at a person, it's the same idea. The person is not what you think it is. Do not look at the surface, and therefore don't label the person. 
Labels are for clothing, for products, not for souls. A soul is a whole other experience. And a soul evokes humility and appreciation, almost, I would say, of awe, of the dignity and majesty of another person's life, as well as your own. And the more different they are than you, the more there is to appreciate and to learn from it. Because there's something they can teach you that you don't know on your own. So am I a label? Absolutely not. Are you a label? Absolutely not. Labels are used, but they actually undermine the very essence and nature of what makes us tick, of who you are, of who I am. I've repeated this so many times, but I can't resist. I meet somebody, and I've done this many times. Who are you? They give you their business card. They give you their label. My business card, I'm an architect, computer program, in finance, a doctor, a lawyer, a writer. And when I say, that's what you do, I asked who you are. Ah, some people just fall silent, and some say, ah, what can I tell you? I've been doing it so long, what, I've do, what I do has become who I am. Who you are should define what you do, not the other way around. But that's the world in which we live. We need to make a living. We need to survive. So our jobs, our functions, become our labels. And our labels become our identities. It's perfectly fine to do work, whether you like it or you don't like your work. But don't ever identify. That's not your label. That's what you do. It may be very meaningful. It may be something that you take great pride in. By all means. God bless But your identity is something far more sublime, something far less quantifiable, far less definable. And that's why we're not looking for a label. When I'm saying the word soul, I'm not looking for yet another label. I'm not looking to impose my idea of a soul. A soul is your spirit. It's your purpose. It's your mission. It's your calling. It's uniquely yours. And it's a piece of the divine that was embedded and planted within you. And it makes you indispensable and absolutely necessary, and you have something to accomplish that you and only you can accomplish. That's the driving force. Can we wander away from that and behave in ways that are inconsistent, incongruous, and not aligned with our very essential soul? Of course we can. Can we do things that go against it? Of course. Can we do things that are destructive? Yes. But that soul never gets blemished. Think of it like a healthy heart. But the fuel lines, the channels of expression have been contaminated, have been polluted, have been toxified in some way. So our job is to clean up, find out what your soul is like, and then clean up your act and make sure that the arteries, make sure the channels, make sure that the the fuel lines are clean and expressing who you are and also bringing back from the outside world into yourself in a healthy way with healthy attitudes. This is a message I believe is maybe the most important message we can share with each other. Because we have many problems in life. We have many problems in the world. But there are symptoms and there are roots. Think of it this way. If every child on earth, from the youngest age, knew in their gut, knew in their deepest part of themselves, because they've been taught and repeated by parents and educators and society, 
I am a piece of the divine. I'm not a label. I'm not here. I'm not defined by what I produce, my looks, my buying power, my social status, my religion or lack or no religion, my faith, my culture, my race, my color, but my, my soul. And it's something every day is reinforced time and again, not just words, but we, we project those feelings and therefore that value. And the same is with everyone around me. It's not just me. Everyone I know is exactly, has also a very unique soul, exclusive soul. What would the world look like if our children from the youngest age knew that? And that we're all part of one organism and we all need each other as much as we're needed. What would that do to the world? I have no doubt that that alone would transform our earth. But for that, we need the cooperation and the commitment of parents, educators, media, and a society that reinforces it and let alone doesn't undermine that message because that's what commercialization does. Your value? If you buy my product, you have more value. And that's what I'll sell you. Look at my ad. Look at my marketing. I'm marketing labels. I'm marketing packaging. Maybe it's a good product from time to time. But what am I telling you? Because I want something from you. I don't say it that way. So I say, if you look like this, you dress like this, you smoke this, you travel here, you purchase this, you drive this type of vehicle, you will be more valuable. You will look better. It really goes against the very grain of the message that we should be receiving from our parents and from everyone. If I, if I was able to initiate that the government should insist, just like we have on television, we have uh, public TV, where the, where the networks who, are commercial, who have commercial value have to give time and resources to create public TV, which is free. And we also insist that for every commercial, for every advertisement, for every marketing drive, we also have to equally give another message. That you matter, that you are absolutely necessary, that your soul is pure, that you are your soul, not the label. Now, I know you could say, I'm selling you a product, you have to buy this yacht or travel to this place to feel more valuable. And then there's a disclaimer that says, but no, even if you don't do this, you're extremely valuable. That's going to be a pill battle. But you know what? With smoking, they figure it out. Cigarette advertising, and then it says, well, actually, it's hazardous to your health. <laughs> the same ad. And people, <laughs> this is the bizarre nature, the absurd nature of human beings. So perhaps we could suggest something like that. Anyway, it's, it's an idea. The point I want to make, of course, this is really, above all, the obligation that begins in our formative years as children. Because that's when our attitudes are shaped both our stereotypes or the non-stereotypes that our parents and our educators can teach us to define things not by labels, not things as in commodities, souls, human beings, not by labels, not by categories. And frankly, even the things we do label, we have to always know that there's something deeper. I'm not talking about a man-made nonsense, but there's deeper realities even to the things that do have labels. So I'll conclude with what I began. Let us do whatever we can, you and I, to teach each other and teach everyone we can come in contact with, our sphere of influence, 
that you are not a label. Labels are for clothing, for products, not for souls. Your soul transcends and defies labels. It's a divine, absolute force with the power to transform this world for the good and recognize the harmony within diversity. And that creates the ultimate inclusivity, which doesn't compromise the individual, at the same time, doesn't compromise the good of the whole, the greater good. Thank you so much. Simon Jacobson here, Meaningful Life Center, MeaningfulLife.com. Please subscribe to our growing YouTube channel, as well as share this with others. And I'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions, your critique. Be blessed. Be unique. You were born an original. Don't become a copy. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.